The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship and ready to fellowship with the Lord around the teaching of His Word. We do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is God's grace recovery procedure. All sins were paid for at the cross, so the issue is not trying to impress God with our sincerity or how sorry we are with our sins or any of those things. The issue is Christ's payment for those sins and our recognition of that sin in the life and admission of guilt to God in, in confession. And then instantly we are restored to fellowship with God. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can move forward in the spiritual life. So let's begin with prayer preceded by a few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Father, we come to you this morning because of your grace, your undeserved merit, all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ has allowed you to exercise uh, unimaginable freedom in bestowing upon us an infinite array of blessings. Father, we pray that as we study your word and we learn about these blessings and all the spiritual assets you have provided for us to live a spiritual life and to glorify you, that we might be challenged and motivated to advance to spiritual maturity, that you might receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5, and we will spend just a few brief seconds there before we move on. We have been studying the section in Galatians 5, 17 to 26, which focuses on the believer's walk by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the divine empowerment for the unique spiritual life of the church age. The life that we have in this age is a supernatural life. It is different from the life that God has given believers in any other dispensation. It differs from the spiritual life of the Jews in the dispensation of Israel preceding the cross. It differs from the spiritual life of the tribulation, for there will be no indwelling Holy Spirit during that time. It differs from the spiritual life during the millennium. It is a unique spiritual life, and it is based upon the fact that the church, the body of Christ, 
all believers during this age. The church is a unique group of believers who have a unique role, a unique place in the angelic conflict, and we have a unique testimony before the angels and before man. And so what God is demonstrating in this age is that the spiritual life can be produced only by dependence upon His power and His enablement. And that comes through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is termed the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And that just refers to the power base. It comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that that is an instrumental means there, a dative of instrument which means by means of the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit helps us to learn doctrine, the result is the application of doctrine. Now, what we see in this passage is an emphasis on the day-to-day mechanics, walking by means of the Spirit, and the terminology that's used here indicates the fact that it is a moment-by-moment dependence. So it's not talking about the filling by means of the Holy Spirit, which emphasizes the power base, it emphasizes that, that, emphasizes that moment-by-moment progression that is to characterize the believer's life. We walk by means of the Spirit in verse 16, and we are led by the Spirit in verse 18. And we saw that to be led means you must follow. We follow by walking, and that is further illustrated in the word that is used for walking in verse 25, stoikeo, which means to follow in the footsteps of another, to follow in the path that is laid out by another. So the Holy Spirit is the pathfinder, and we follow Him as we advance in the spiritual life. Now, as a person, as a believer, lives the spiritual life, he, has going, he is going to face an inevitable struggle, according to this passage. Because as a believer, he still possesses a sin nature which exercises a desire to influence and control the life of the believer. Furthermore, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we are also filled by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit exercises His desire to influence and control the life of the believer. So there is this continual struggle between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit. Now, the sin nature can not only, not only produces P.S. for personal sins, it also produces human good and morality. So that morality is something that is different from the spiritual life. And this is something that I think is so important for us to understand. And that is that morality is for believer and unbeliever alike. Anything that the, that the unbeliever can do, on his own ability and his own power, is not the unique spiritual life of the church age. What we have in the church age is something that goes far beyond our innate human ability to live ethical and moral lives. And the the fact that we've seen here in our study of comparing passages like Romans chapter 7, Paul in his early years is a believer trying to live according to God's standards, through his own power, not understanding the role of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. He was trying to live a moral life, and the result was he continued to sin. So we see that the production of the sin nature involves both personal sin and human good, and the consequences when you're operating on the sin nature are always the same, and he gives examples in verses 19 through 21 sort of a litmus test to determine whether or not 
the major influence or control factor in the life is the sin nature or the Holy Spirit. He lists a variety of sins there, which we went over last time. We saw the first three relate to sexual sin. The second two relate to religious sin. The next one relate to the consequences in terms of human relationships. And then the last two deal with sins related to drunkenness and orgies and excessive partying. Now, when he concludes this, he makes a very profound statement that is not understood by very many people today and one we need to spend some time addressing. We've looked at this before and I'm going to continue to sort of unpack this concept of inheritance and inheriting the kingdom. We've looked at it, I think, at least twice in our study of Galatians so far. And so I want to start looking at it from some different perspectives and adding to that. Part of what the, the technique of a good teacher is repetition. You teach a few things, make sure people understand that, and then you add to it. It's the principle of line upon line, precept upon precept. And so some of the things we're going to look at here are good review for you. Other things are going to be a little different. But we need to understand this concept of inheriting the kingdom of God. Why? Why is this important? Well, first of all, because it's in the Word of God. Anything, any subject that's covered in the Word of God is there for a purpose. God intends for us to understand it. He intends for us to make application from it to one degree or another. Now, not everything in the Word of God is going to be immediately applicable to us. But everything in the Word of God is important for us to understand and apply in our lives. But I think this whole inheritance concept, the doctrine of the inheritance of the kingdom, is one of the major doctrines in Scripture related to the motivation of the believer in the spiritual life. If you are going to advance spiritually beyond the concept of a personal sense of your eternal destiny, it will be due to the fact that you have assimilated the doctrine of inheritance into your soul, and that is what is motivating you to move forward in the spiritual life. As I think about it, when I watch people, both in terms of uh, my experience with other believers and my own personal experience, I think in the early years of our spiritual life, when we first become saved, we're motivated by the desire to learn, to know more, to answer questions. How do we understand prophecy? What is God going to do in the future? Well, how exactly does salvation work? What is this thing called election? And how does the sovereignty of God relate to the free will of man? All of these kinds of questions drive us, and so we are motivated by an intellectual sort of motivation to learn new information. But by the time we get into spiritual adolescence, many of those questions are answered. You learn what you wanted to learn. The things that drove you by means of intellectual curiosity have now been satisfied. So you have to replace that initial infant-oriented motivation with the motivation of maturity. The motivation in infancy differs from the motivation in maturity. And what happens as we move through spiritual adolescence is that we begin to realize that we're living not for today, not for tomorrow, but for eternity. We are determining right now by the decisions we make 
what we will be for all eternity. And that becomes the major motivator in the spiritual life of the believer. In our study of James on Wednesday night, which I think is one of the most important studies that we'll probably ever engage in because it's where we're learning about how God has uh, provided for us to solve the problems in life, adversity, the various adversity, whether it's adversity or prosperity. Whenever we come into these situations, we have to decide whether we're going to handle life on the basis of divine resources or human resources. And God has provided everything we need in the spiritual life to handle any and every situation in life on the basis of His Word. Now, we outline this under the category of ten problem-solving devices or ten stress busters. By way of review, it begins with confession, 1 John 1.9, and that's the entry point into that fortress that God provides for the soul. He is our fortress, the psalmist says. He is our shield. He's our buckler. He's our refuge in time of trouble. And the entry point is confession. When we're outside that fortress, we're operating on the sin nature and on our own resources. So we have to exercise grace recovery to get back into the fortress. That comes through confession. Then the power base for the spiritual life, is the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we handle problems under the uh, ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then we have three basic problem-solving devices. The faith rest drill, which produces the faith rest life. Then there is doctrinal orientation and grace orientation, which work together in tandem, orienting our life to doctrine, the Word of God, orienting our life to grace. And that is all part of spiritual infancy. Those are the building blocks to the whole spiritual life. As you master those techniques, as you master those spiritual skills, you will be enabled then to advance beyond spiritual childhood. These are the basic building blocks, like in mathematics you have arithmetic and subtraction, basic multiplication and division. Once you master that, then you can handle just about anything, but you can't get to, to algebra and calculus and trigonometry until, first of all, you master some of those basic skills. So this is the basics of the spiritual life. The transition stage, I think, is when you come to the personal sense of your eternal destiny because it's at that point that we become, begin to realize that every decision we're making right now affects all of eternity, and we start thinking in terms of our, in our, about our present life, in terms of the eternal ramifications of that. And that is what the doctrine of the inheritance of the kingdom of God relates to. Then, of course, the advanced problem-solving devices, you have the what I call the love triplex. This must have been an older overhead that I grabbed. Uh, occupation with Christ, I've shifted down here. That's number nine, so we have... Seven, eight, and nine are personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, and then occupation with Christ. It is our love for God, our focus on Christ, our, uh, our emulation of His example of unconditional love for all mankind that is critical in all of our relationships, and then the ultimate result of that is inner happiness that perfect tranquility and peace that we have 
and that we will study under the third, second and third categories of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. But for now, we're on the topic of inheritance. Now, this is an issue that is uh, not understood, an issue that is very confusing to a number of different people. So let's start off and ask a couple of basic questions. We ended with this last time, but I want to go back and review it. Pick up anybody who wasn't here last time, and for those of you who uh, are wrestling with some of these things, it will be good review. First of all, we have to ask about the meaning of the phrase. It is inherit the kingdom of God. It is not simply talking about inheritance. In Romans chapter 8, there is a reference to being heirs of Christ, heirs of God, excuse me, and a second category, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Each of these various adjectival phrases or genitive phrases that go along with the concept of heirship or inheritance are important for defining the subject matter. What are we talking about when, we, when we're talking about inheriting the kingdom of God? Well, kingdom of God is a technical term that is related to the messianic kingdom that will be brought into existence when Jesus Christ is personally ruling and reigning on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now that has not occurred yet. That was the kingdom that Jesus offered when He came during the first advent and which was postponed and does not come yet. At the time that Jesus came at the first advent, we'll use this arrow to indicate the first advent. His last three and a half years of public ministry culminated in the crucifixion. He came offering the kingdom of David, the Messianic kingdom, to the Jews, and they rejected it. So it was offered and postponed. It was not inaugurated. That's the wrong terminology to use. There's been a group of so-called dispensationalists, which I I like the term now, revisionist dispensationalists. Not uh, The term they came up with initially was progressive. I don't like that. They're revisionists. It is not a, a, a uh, uh, modification of traditional dispensationalism. It is a false revision of dispensationalism. And they're claiming that Jesus came and He inaugurated the kingdom, but it's not fully here. It's called already, not yet. That's the terminology they use. And one of the interesting things about this is I challenged two, two professors at Dallas Seminary uh, invented this. I had uh, I've known one of them since just before going to seminary, and I had known the other one. Uh, we were all students at about the same time, and I had met the other one uh, in seminary, and he I had him for a doctoral course on dispensationalism. And at the same time, I was studying a lot of issues in the charismatic movement. That was my field of of uh, specialty in my uh, Ph.D. program at Dallas Seminary was uh, history of the Pentecostal movement. And uh, one of the things that was coming out there was they had picked up terminology from a uh, theologian named George Ladd about the kingdom that it was already here but not yet. Now, George Ladd was not a dispensationalist. And he had developed this concept and so a new group of 
charismatics are called, the technical term form is vineyard movement or third wave, came along and picked up this term and said, well, if it's already here, if it's been inaugurated in some sense, then we can use that concept to support the idea that, that these gifts, like tongues, which are mentioned in, in Joel 2 and quoted by Peter in Acts 2, that this indicates something about that these are already here, so there's certain, it's a foretaste of the kingdom, and so this is already initiated. That was the, the vineyard argument. And I went to one of these professors at Dallas, and I said, if you're going to buy into an already not yet view of the kingdom, then what keeps you from going into the vineyard movement? Oh, well, they're just illegitimately applying it. That was the answer. Well, recently a book came out on called Three Views or Four Views of Revelation, which is one of these scholarly books that they write for seminary students and theologians to try to figure out what's right. And different theologians will take their the different positions. And in that book you have four different views of Revelation, and then the other guys interact with it. But the guy who argues, and he's from Moody of all places, the guy who argues the revisionist dispensational position opens the door to the continuation of the sign gifts on the basis of his already not yet view of the kingdom. Ten years ago, I was warning them that if they take that step, that's where they're going to end up. It's logically inevitable. And it is destructive. Every piece of doctrine fits together, folks. It's not just random pieces here and there. God is an orderly God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He has an orderly and systematic plan. Every piece fits together. And if you start moving one and shifting one piece, it's going to change everything else. And so we have to be very careful when we think things through because you can't just focus on one aspect of doctrine. You have to think, and this is why theology is hard mental work. When you take a position, you have to say, okay, what implication does this have for theology proper? What implication does this have for soteriology? What implication does this have for pneumatology? the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. What implication does this have for eschatology, the study of prophetic things or last things? So everything you study, every decision you make, is going to have an effect on other areas. So you have to be able to think logically and consistently within your system. And very few people can do that. And very few pastors, sadly to say, are willing to do that, and a lot of that's because very few congregations are willing to let their pastors spend the time doing that. They want their pastor to be uh, starting this program and that program and walking up and down the streets, knocking on doors and going down the wards in the hospital or whatever it might be in order to uh, gladhand everybody and make sure everybody's uh, approbation lust is being satisfied. And if they're doing that, they can't fulfill their primary responsibility, which is to feed the sheep the Word of God. And Scripture says that that's how you grow. Just as you grow physically by eating physical food, you grow spiritually by taking in spiritual food. And if a pastor is not spending a maximum amount of time each week in the Word of God studying, and not just the Word of God, but... My goodness, with, as Paul warned the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian pastors in Acts 17, I believe, 
that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing, a pastor has to be aware of all of these ics, acts, and spasms that are going around the church in every generation so that he can warn his sheep and protect them from these various problems. And if he's not studying, he's not going to be able to guard the sheep. And that's a major problem. We're getting far afield. First Advent, Jesus came, offered the kingdom. The Jews rejected His claim as Messiah, and it is postponed. So it doesn't come back until He comes at the second Advent when He returns to the earth bodily. And at that time, He sets up His kingdom, which is called the Millennium, which refers to, from the Latin word milli, meaning 1,000. It's the 1,000-year reign of Christ described in Revelation chapter 20. In between, you have two major events, beginning on the day of Pentecost and extending until the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds and those who are dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds. It takes place in the twinkling of an eye. There is no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. The time has been set from eternity past. The church is raptured. We meet Jesus in the air. And during this time, there will be seven years called tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. It is when Satan throws his last great temper tantrum in human history in order to try to achieve his plan and purposes. Now, what takes place in the heavenlies during this time is called the judgment seat of Christ, also referred to as the Bema seat, that's the Greek word, Bema, which referred to the seat upon which the local judge or magistrate would sit when he was executing judgment on those who were brought before him. So this is the evaluation throne of Jesus Christ when all believers are evaluated. You don't get there unless you're a believer. So the issue at the Bema seat is not salvation, The issue is something else, which is what we will look at eventually this morning. Right now we are in this age, which is called the church age, sometimes the age of grace, which is its primary characteristic. So this gives us a basic outline. What we're talking about, when we talk about inheriting the kingdom, is we're talking about the place, the role, the function of church age believers when they return to the earth in their resurrected bodies with the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming to establish the the millennial kingdom, what is your role going to be in that millennial kingdom? What is your place in the millennial kingdom? And the Scripture has a lot to say about that. And if you are a successful believer and you advance to spiritual maturity or you are advancing to spiritual maturity, you will be an inheritor of the kingdom. But if you do not, you will not inherit the kingdom. So we have to ask some very specific questions about the meaning of that term. So point number one, what does inherit mean? What does inherit mean? And it comes from the Greek word, kleronomos. See if I can get a better pen. Try this one. 
There we go. Kleronomos. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-O-S. And it means to inherit. It means to possess. It means to own. Now, in English, we all know that there's a difference between somebody who just enters into a house and lives in a house and somebody who owns and possesses the house. There's a very clear distinction. And if you can understand that distinction, you will understand the basic distinction Scripture makes between being an heir of the kingdom and being saved. Someone who is saved and not an heir may live in the kingdom but they will not own or possess the kingdom. They won't be an heir of the kingdom. That's where we're going. We're going to understand that concept and how the Scripture explains that. So when we ask the first question or point one, what does it mean? The issue is, is it something that is simply synonymous with entering into heaven and gaining eternal life, or does it refer to special blessings and rewards in heaven to believers who advance to spiritual maturity? And the conclusion we will see is that it is not salvation. It is not entering into heaven or gaining eternal life. Because if that were true, when you look at passages like the one we have here, then works would be an issue. Because what this passage says is if you practice these sins, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. If inherit the kingdom of God means saved, then what that passage would be saying is if you practice these things, you won't be saved. And that contradicts any number of other passages. So that's point number two. The problem with the first view that it means entering into heaven is that several passages are contradicted. For example, Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8.9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So inheriting the kingdom must mean something else. It must refer to a category of believer in heaven. So when we get to heaven, there will be two categories of believers. There will be heirs and non-heirs, but all will be in heaven. Point number three. A second problem we have to address is the meaning of the word practice which is from the Greek word proso. P-R-A-S-S-O. Proso, which means to practice. It's a present uh, active indicative here, and that means, or it's a present active participle, and that means continual action. But when we talk about continual action, that can cover any range of meaning. Does that mean to do something a few times? Does it mean to practice this after salvation for maybe 10, 15, 20 years, and then the last year or two of your life you don't practice it? Does it refer to just continual activity from the point of salvation all the way till you're taken to home to be with the Lord? And there are problems, as you could probably guess, with each of those views. If uh, where, where does it stop? How much is too much? How much practice is too much practice? Point number four. 
it's important to realize that the entire phrase, inherit the kingdom of God, must be taken into account. And when we look at other passages of Scripture, we must look at it in terms of that entire phrase. Now, there are three historic views for understanding this. The first view is the Arminian view. Now, this is an I here. It's not an E. The Armenians are an ethnic group of people who live in eastern Turkey. I don't know, and I'm not really concerned with their theological positions. But Arminianism is a school of theology that developed in the late 1500s and early 1600s, and it's named after a Dutch theologian by the name of James Arminius. And James Arminius was, a, was originally a Calvinist theologian who was trained in France. He taught at the university, I think it was in Leiden in the Netherlands, and he reacted to the hyper-Calvinism. Now, hyper-Calvinism is one of those technical terms that I hear abused an awful lot. Sometimes I hear people use that term for anybody who has a little stronger view of the sovereignty of God than they do. That's not what hyper-Calvinism is. Hyper-Calvinism is not somebody who believes in a certain strong view of divine election. Lewis Perry Chafer held to a very Calvinistic view of election, but he was not a hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist refers to somebody who is not only a what's termed, and we'll define it in a minute, as a five-point Calvinist, but also a Calvinist who is supralapsarian. And that's a very rigorous, almost fatalistic form of Calvinism. And if you don't know what supralapsarianism is, just let it go by. You don't need to know. Uh, we're not going to get into that this morning. That's just an extremely rigid form of Calvinism. Now, the Ar- Arminius and his followers taught certain views. And they were challenged by the state church at that time of Holland, the Dutch Reformed Church. And they were accused of heresy. So there was a big trial around 1610 called the Senate of Dort. And at the Senate of Dort, the Arminians set forth five points called the uh, remonstrant position. And those five points were that man is, I'm going to put an A here, for absolutely free. In other words, you're born just as free as Adam was created free. In other words, Adam's sin has no impact on your volition whatsoever. Now it does. It doesn't collapse it or destroy it or straitjacket it, but it does have an effect, so we would disagree there. They believed in a conditional, and I want to emphasize that word, they believed in a conditional election. That's why the fifth point means that that you could lose salvation because you had to keep up that condition or God would stop choosing you. So there's a conditional election. There is an unlimited atonement. Christ died for everyone. We would agree with that. And that they taught that the 
ministry of God the Holy Spirit was resistible. The Calvinist position was a reaction to this. And it's what's called the five points of Calvinism under the acronym TULIP. The first point was, they define it as usually total depravity, but if we really want to understand it, it's TI, total inability. Total inability. And that means that their view of man as a result of Adam's fall is that he is so imprisoned by sin that he isn't even able to express positive volition to God. Period. He will not, he cannot. That means that if he's going to even have positive volition, God's got to give that to him. And you see, this is going to have tremendous implications. The second, the U is for unconditional election. That man does nothing, it's totally dependent upon God's choice in eternity past. And there's a lot of truth to that. Because God does make an, a, a choice in eternity past. And the condition is not based on a merit in us. So there's a lot of truth to that. Point number three. Limited atonement. And that's a pernicious doctrine that Christ died only for the elect. We would reject that. I don't necessarily agree with unconditional election even as they tend to form it. I think that that we have a problem in theology historically as we tend to try to isolate these two positions and very few people until the last 20 or 30 years are really saying, look, there's elements in both systems that are right. There needs to be a third paradigm. And we see a lot of guys in the grace movement who are working this out right now. And I think uh, people like Jody Dillow in his book, Reign of the Servant Kings, and Zane Hodges and others have done a, a wonderful job in getting us started. Uh, tr- uh, total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace. And the way they define that, as one person put it one time, it's almost as if it's salvation. Uh, one person characterized it as divine rape. You, you are dragged into the kingdom totally against your will. It is irresistible. If you don't want to be saved and you're elect, you're going to be saved whether you want it or not. And point number five is the perseverance of the saints, which in a mild form means nothing more than eternal security. That much we would agree with. But in the way it's usually articulated, it means that if you are a true believer and have saving faith, then you will persevere in good works and your genuine faith will be evidenced by that good, those good works. We call that lordship salvation today. That's how all of this relates. So, the reason I say this, and I've gone through this, is to give you some background. In Arminianism, they will, the Arminians will interpret this passage, and they will say that, that you can, see, you can lose your salvation. If you trust Christ as your Savior, and then you continue in these sins, you will lose your salvation. Why? Because of their fifth point. You can, salvation is dependent upon you, and you can lose it. In the Calvinist, especially the hyper-Calvinist position, they interpret this to mean that, okay, if you practice these things, you weren't really saved to begin with. Notice the it's almost like a word game they play. Here they just say you lose your salvation. 
Calvinists would say you can't lose your salvation so you weren't saved to begin with. When you prayed, when you told God that you accepted Christ as your Savior, it wasn't genuine. That's their assumption. I think there's a certain amount of arrogance in that, but and it, it violates a lot of good exegesis, but that's their position. Now, there's a third position that is being uh, developed today that is uh, last several years. It's been around a long time. Don't give me the I don't want you to get the idea this is new. You can go back throughout history and you will find this position. But because of the current theological climate where there's a lot of argument over these issues, it's being refined and developed in new ways. And this is what's called the free grace position. And the free grace position makes a distinction between salvation and inheriting the kingdom. That these are two distinct concepts. So the issue here then is not our eternal destiny. The issue is our role in the eternal kingdom, in the messianic kingdom, and rewards. Point number five, that was all point number four, the historical background. Point number five is the problem. The problem is that these passages like uh, uh, Galatians 3.29, Galatians 4.1, 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, speak of our inheritance as a permanent possession based on faith alone in Christ alone. So, some passages view inheritance as permanent. Other passages, such as Ephesians 5.5, this you know with certainty, he's talking to believers, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, we looked at that context last week, he had just told them as believers, stop being immoral, impure, and covetous, greedy, idolaters. Well, obviously, as believers, you can engage in those activities. So when he says this, you know it's certain that no immoral, impure, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's different. There's a difference between inheritance and salvation. Same thing in Galatians 3, I mean, Colossians 3.24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So inheritance there is seen as a reward. A reward is something given for works. Salvation is not given for works. It is a grace gift. So there is a distinction made between gifts and rewards for works. So here, there, is a, there are these passages. Some passages view inheritance as permanent. Some as a temporary thing or a reward. How do we correlate these concepts? And then in point number six... We saw that there are two concepts, two categories of inheritance then. There is inheriting the kingdom, which is being a joint heir with Christ because we have endured in the spiritual life following His pattern. And then there is the category of being an heir of God, which is inheriting simply eternal life and an eternal destiny in heaven, Hebrews 1, verse 14. Uh, Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, category 1, and joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. 
So we have those two, two categories. Now, I want to go back into a passage in the Gospels in order to understand this as our Lord taught it in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is the parable of the minas. First we have to pick up the context. Back in 19.1, Jesus is going through Jericho. So He is in the town of Jericho and there's a, a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. Verse 2, he's a chief tax gatherer and he's rich. So he is the regional uh, district manager of the IRS at that time. Now, if you think your taxes are unjust, and you should, come on, let's wake up a little, little bit. They're not anything like the unfair taxation practice that the Roman Empire imposed on regions like Judea. They would hire someone like Zacchaeus, or Matthew was also a tax collector. They would hire the tax collector, and they would give him his quota. They would say, okay, here's your region, and the amount of taxes that you will be assessed for that region at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the year is, is so much. Anything you collect over that is yours. So that would encourage them to go out and they would collect all that they could. And then when the tax assessment came in, they would give whatever percentage of, that, of the money they had to Rome and they kept all the rest. So there was no real accountability. So each region, each area probably had its own different uh, tax code and it would change from year to year according to the financial needs and lusts of the tax collector. And the chief whole uh, region was Zacchaeus. So this guy is wealthy and he has acquired his wealth on the backs of all of the Jews in the area. That's why the Jews hated the tax collectors is because they were in league with the Gentile Roman oppressors and so most Jews hated tax collectors. They were, they were social outcasts. That's why the Pharisees were appalled that Jesus would associate with tax collectors. And Jesus wasn't associating with the tax collectors because He was a sinner, but because they realized their need for grace. So Zacchaeus understands. He's got positive volition. He's trying to see Jesus. And eventually in this context, I don't want to read through the whole story, but Zacchaeus becomes saved and... His response is to his salvation, to his gift of grace, is given in verse 8. Now, grace is a free gift. It's not earned. So what Zacchaeus is doing here with his money is not paying for his salvation. This is his response. Grace should have an impact on your pocketbook. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor... And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus is fully aware of all that God has done for him in saving him. And because he understands that how depraved he was, how lost he was, he understands the depths of God's grace and it revolutionizes his thinking about his possessions and his money. 
So grace is the motivator here, and it causes a reaction in his use of money. Now that reminds us of a very important principle, and that is that our use of money for the Lord's work is a, related to the principle of grace, not legalism. Legalism seeks to use money as a means of control and a means of manipulation. But giving is part of your responsibility, part of our responsibilities, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, part of our priesthood, to support the local church and to support foreign missions. That's our responsibility. It is not something that is mandated or legislated. It is not tithing. In the Old Testament, you have the principle of tithing related to the nation of Israel because of the type of government that God established in the nation Israel. It was a theocracy. We live in a democracy from the Greek word krasis, meaning rule, and demos, meaning people. So the people rule, mob rule. It's a representative or should be a representative republic, but it's deteriorated into a democracy in this century. And, and under a theocracy, God is the ruler. God rules. He is the chief executive under the Mosaic Law. God was the chief executive in the nation Israel. But God had to administer His rule, administer the kingdom on earth in terms of the kingdom of Israel. So there was a bureaucracy associated with that. And that was called the priests and the Levites. So somehow the bureaucrats had to get their pay. So there was a tithe assessed on the nation Israel. It was like a tax. This is described in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 to 33. It was to support the priests and the Levites. Then there was a second tithe. It always used to... uh, make me curious when I would go to churches where they emphasize tithing. Say, okay, are you giving 30% of your income to the church? Because that's what the Bible describes. There was one tithe, 10% of the income went in to pay for the uh, support of the priests and Levites. Then a second tithe, a second 10% was taken out that went went to the coffers in Jerusalem and went to the temple, but it was to be used for a party a celebration, a worship of God, but it was a national party. It always has interested me how God uses very concrete means to teach principles about Himself in the Old Testament. You have all the visual aids, the teaching aids related to the, uh, the, the tabernacle and the furniture and the tabernacle and the temple. But the same thing was true about money because God promised at the end of the law financial economic prosperity for the nation Israel if they were obedient to Him. He said, if you're obedient to Me, I will prosper you. If you're not obedient to Me, then you will suffer economically. So every year we're going to have take a, a, a litmus test. We're going to have a barometric reading to determine whether I am prospering you or blessing you. So we're going to take the gross national product and take 10% of that and throw a big party. Well, if everybody was obeying the Lord and the nation of Israel was following God's spiritual principles, then God would be blessing them and they would have a gross national product of $100 million. But if God was not prospering them, they would have a gross national, pros- pro- uh, uh, gross national product of maybe $20 million. Well, 10% of $100 million is $10 million, and you can have a great party for $10 million. But if your gross national product is only $20 million, 
10% is $2 million, and you don't have such a great party. So it's a real visual lesson how well you can party at the end of the year is an indicator of how much God has blessed you and how you're doing spiritually. God is very concrete with the nation Israel. So that was the second tithe. And then there was a third tithe, which was just taken every third year, and that was the welfare uh, procedure for the nation Israel to take care of widows and orphans and those who were stranded in the land. So you have uh, really three different tithes. On top of that, there were also free will give offerings that were taken. That was the response to grace. The other was legislated and mandated. But in the New Testament, we don't have tithing. Why do we not have tithing? Because there's no national theocratic government to support anywhere. When people come along and they emphasize tithing, it tells you one thing. They don't understand the difference between Israel and the church. Under the Israel economy, Malachi, in Malachi, he challenged the people with their disobedience and he, they had not been bringing tithes to the temple and he challenged them to bring their tithes to the storehouse, which was the temple treasury. And you'll hear, and I've heard, preachers get up and say, we need to now take up our offerings for the for the, to bring our offerings to the Lord to the storehouse. And that shows that he doesn't understand the difference between Old Testament Israel. There is no temple. There's no temple treasury. This is the church. And tithing doesn't have anything to do with the church. What we have in the church age is the principle of grace. What we see with Zacchaeus is the principle of grace. Notice the difference. Tithing, legalism mandates a 10% gift. Notice how much grace gives in verse 8. Behold, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I will give four times as much. Seems like poor old Zacchaeus just needed to learn something about legalistic tithing and he could have kept most of his money. But Zacchaeus learned about grace, and he was giving 50% plus. And we don't say much about money around here. Maybe we should say something about money. At least remind people that there's a, an offering box on the wall in the back so people don't forget because I know you can easily come to church and, and we have a check in our pocket and we forget to drop it in the box on the way out. But I've always been committed to the principle of grace giving. Because grace giving means that the people put the check in the box, not because you're manipulating them through guilt or through some kind of overt pressure or legalistic pressure, but what goes into the grace box is the result of what God is doing in their life. And if people are truly positive, they're going to support the ministry because it's a result of their spiritual growth. And if people aren't positive, they won't give. And if people don't give, there's not money to support the local church, so let's close the doors and go home and do something else. And there's so many ministries that are going on, and you'll hear people every now and then, well, you know, you're having a little trouble financially. Why don't you start having a bazaar? Or why don't you have an auction? Or why don't you have a garage sale or rummage sale? Or all these things that all these other churches do. And the reason those other churches have to resort to those things is because they're filled with people who aren't positive. So they have to come up with some sort of gimmick to get into everybody's pocketbook. And the same thing is true for our 
um, for the tape ministry that we have. I firmly believe that we as a congregation cannot support a big tape ministry. We can't subsidize a, a tape ministry. We do well with the size we are to support the local church ministry that we have here. That tape ministry is like a second congregation. And it should be a self-supported ministry. And if people who are listening to tapes on a regular basis are positive, then they will support the ministry. And if the financial support isn't there, then it's because people aren't positive, so we just won't put out the tapes. It's as simple as that. God provides the hearers, and God provides the resources to do His will. And so all we have to do is relax, let, let people be impacted by the grace of God and what God is doing in their life and grow spiritually, and the financial issue takes care of itself. So we see Zacchaeus being impacted by grace, and he is full of unbounded enthusiasm here, and he's ready to give 50% of his possessions to the Lord. Now, do we hear the Lord saying, Now, Zacchaeus, calm down just a little bit. You, you've got retirement to look forward to. You've got your pension plan to take care of. You've got your kids' education in the future. Just, just calm down and relax. And, and rethink this a little bit. No, the Lord does not. In fact, what we see the Lord do in His response is to encourage Zacchaeus to move to an even higher level of commitment in this arena. Look at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus, that's the He, He went on to tell a parable. Now, a parable is a fictitious story designed to communicate a doctrinal principle. So Jesus goes on to tell a parable because He was near Jerusalem and they, that is those around Him, supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now I've already referred to this. Jesus had offered the kingdom. They had rejected the kingdom. And now Jesus wants to make it clear to them that the kingdom is being postponed. Notice, He doesn't say... The kingdom is inaugurated, and when he talks about the nobleman here, he doesn't stay in town. He goes somewhere else. Verse 12, He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, that gives us a summary of what's going to happen in this parable. It's very interesting. thought hit me this morning as I read that. This is so typical of Hebrew or Aramaic storytelling. The first thing they do is give you an overview and then they come back and fill in the details. That's what happens in Genesis 1.1. Through the end of chapter, the whole chapter of Genesis 1 gives the overview of God's creative process in those six days and then the seventh day rested. Then chapter 2 comes in and gives you the expanded details of what took place on the sixth day. And the liberal comes along and says it's two different accounts of creation. But they don't understand how Jews tell stories. First they give you the summary. And that's what Jesus does. This whole thing is about this nobleman who's going to go off to to a distant country to receive a kingdom and then return. Verse 13 tells about what he does before he leaves, not when he comes back. See, if this is chronological, you would think that verse 13 follows what happens when he comes back. But verse 13 is what happens before he leaves. He called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas. Now, a mina was roughly equivalent to three months' income. So just factor that into your thinking, whatever you make in a given month, multiply that times three, and that's how much 
the Lord is giving them, the, the nobleman is giving them. Ten, giving each one of them ten minas. And said to them, do business with this. In other words, invest this. Make, put it to work for you until I come back. So, so far, in verse 13, we're introduced to two different, we've been introduced to two different elements of the parable. First of all, you have a nobleman, and that is going to be representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to go to heaven. And there he will receive the kingdom. So if he's going to receive it in heaven, he can't be inaugurating it on earth, can he? No. So Jesus is going to go away to a far country. And this was typical in the, a, a, a client. Somebody who wanted to rule a client nation could go to Rome, appeal to Caesar. Caesar would give them the, the kingdom and then they would go back and they would rule. That's what Herod had done. When Herod the Great went to Rome, he received the kingdom of Judea from from Caesar, and then he went back and he ruled it. So this is a typical procedure for that day. And you have the the nobleman on the one hand who represents the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you have ten of his slaves. Now, and then you have in the third, in in verse 14, a third group, citizens. The ten slaves are not the citizens. The slaves are owned by the nobleman. They are his possession. So they're not going to be unbelievers here. The ten slaves represent ten believers. The citizens represent the unbelievers who are living in the kingdom. But his citizens hated him. That's the natural antagonistic response of unbelievers. Unbelievers hate God. They do not want God involved in their world. And they are shaking their fist at him. There is always going to be animosity and hostility toward God from unbelievers. And we will see that fully developed in the second hour. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's the unbeliever. We don't want Jesus to come back and reign over us. We want to do things on our own. Verse 15, And it came about that when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had been given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. So this is comparable to the judgment seat of Christ. Here we have the first advent and the cross. After the cross, Jesus ascends to heaven where He receives the kingdom and He comes back at the rapture. Rapture, the church is caught up to be with Him in the clouds and we have a seven-year evaluation period in the heavenlies at the judgment seat of Christ. It's at that time that Jesus is going to carry out the work described here in this parable, evaluating the ten servants to see what we did with the minus. Now, the minus represents all the spiritual assets and all the physical assets, gifts, talents, abilities that God has given you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's going to be accountability for how you use it. The accountability is not related to getting into heaven. The accountability is related to your position in the kingdom. So there's going to be we're going to be called to task for how we've utilized what God has given us, how we've utilized our spiritual assets, how we've utilized the time He's given us. Ephesians chapter five, right before we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're reminded that we need to redeem the time. We have financial assets, we have, um, which is our treasure, our time, talents, and treasure. We have certain abilities, natural abilities, which we can use for the Lord, which is distinct from spiritual gifts. 
For example, you might have the spiritual gift of service and the natural talent or ability of playing the piano. You know, it always interests me. Some people talk about somebody singing or they can play the piano or musical instrument as a spiritual gift. That's not Any unbeliever can do that. So therefore, it's not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gift is something that is uniquely given to you at the point of salvation by God the Holy Spirit, and it's distinct from a natural ability that an unbeliever can have. So you have a spiritual gift of service, and you have a natural ability of, of music, so you utilize that natural ability under the category of your spiritual gift of service, and that is uh, how you are investing what God has given you during this age. So we have spiritual assets and physical assets, and God's going to call us to task. Let's see what happens in verse 16. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. So he takes this as mina, and he gets a tenfold return. And the Lord's response is, Well done. Notice the praise. Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be an authority over ten cities. So the result is because you have developed capacity, you have shown responsibility, and that's developed capacity for leadership, you're going to rule and reign over ten cities in the kingdom. Second one came and said, Your mina master has made five minas. Notice the Lord's response. He said to him also, Well done, good slave. No, that's not there. There's no praise. He didn't work quite so hard. There's no praise, but there is reward. So you see different gradations here. Your mina made five mina, your, your made five minas, so the reward is you're going to be over five cities. So he just had a fivefold return, so he's put over five cities, but he's not given the lavish praise that the first one was given. And then another came saying, Master, behold your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief. I hid it. I didn't invest it. I didn't utilize those assets you gave me at all. For I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, and take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. And the Greek word there is very interesting. It means evil. It doesn't mean worthless. It means evil. Now, I've noticed a little trend lately, and I'm going to get on my soapbox, but we don't have that much time, so it'll be a small soapbox. I've noticed a trend lately where I hear people talk about so-and-so committed mass murder or they raped somebody, but they're really a good person. We've totally lost touch of what it means to be a good or bad person. It has to do with character. It has to do with what we do, not how nice and friendly and winsome our personality is. And yet that's how people say, oh, well, so-and-so is really a great person. But look at the horrible things they did. You do horrible things, you're an evil person. Jesus says, this slave, this is a believer who does not utilize the assets that God gives him. And God says, you're an evil slave. You're worthless. You're evil. Because you were given so much and you did not utilize it at all. Jesus says in verse 23, why did you not put the money in the bank? And uh, having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him. Give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. I tell you, he says, that to everyone who has shall more be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Loss at the judgment seat 
of Christ. There will be a loss of rewards to those believers who fail to utilize the assets that God gives us. And He has given us all a tremendous number of assets. There are spiritual possessions at the point of salvation. They are ours throughout our spiritual life. And our responsibility and task as believers in this age is to grow to spiritual maturity so that we can utilize those assets to their maximum so we can be like the servant who had a tenfold return and not be like the servant who just got caught up with the cares and events of life and forgot that his primary task was to serve his Lord and Master and to uh, just do his own thing and to uh, give up whatever return he could have gotten. And that's the issue every one of us must face every day. Are we living the day in light of eternity and what's going to happen at the Bema seat? Or are we living the day in light of what's going to happen tomorrow? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word, to study these things, to be challenged by them, to realize that the decisions we make today, determining how we're going to utilize our time, our talents, our treasure, how we are going to utilize these things today for You, affects our eternal destiny, affects not where we will be, but how we will be in the kingdom or possessors of the kingdom. Father, we pray if there's anyone here who is not sure of their salvation, the issue for them is not obedience or disobedience. The issue for them is not morality or immorality, sin or purity. The issue is only, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Scripture says Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins and that salvation is by believing in Him. It is not by anything else. It's not by works. It's not by obedience. It's not by moral reformation. It's faith alone in Christ alone. All you need say is, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Father, we pray that you'd remind us of these things continually. In Jesus' name, amen.